Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Flower Pot. Today I've got for the very first time a returning speaker and he's returning for a very good reason. It's Will Ritchie, the curator of the Botanic Garden and we're returning to Will because this is his last week because he's about to leave. Hi Will. Hello Bruce. So Will, you've been here and it always staggers me how many years go by, it must be an age thing, but you've been here for five and a half years yeah, just about five years now, so um, enough time to get to know the garden and the institution. And um, I think last time we, we talked about uh, what is a botanic garden, what is the role of a botanic garden. So I think we're going to look a little bit more this time about uh, this botanic garden and what you've kind of experienced over those five and a half years. I'm going to kind of just tease out a few little thoughts that you've had, uh, thoughts about what you've done or what, what's been happening to the garden, and maybe thoughts about the future. But is there one thing over the last five years that you can sort of feel as a bit of a, a change that's happened here? Yeah, I mean, I think for us in the horticulture department, there's been a huge change. So there's actually only five people left who were here when I first started. So the whole department has... Five? Yeah, only five. So mm-hmm. the whole department has changed. We've professionalised quite a lot. We've brought people in with real talent from other institutions. And I think you're seeing a different style and brand of horticulture here now. And that's helping us to deliver our core tenants and pillars of the organisation. So... You know, our conservation work is going really strongly. We're doing lots to diversify the collections and we're starting to see gardens really flourish. Now, and again, uh, we had a really good podcast with L. James a few episodes back, who had been an apprentice and is now working here full time. And that's a really interesting thing that you said I hadn't thought about. Five, only five people left. But we're getting lots of younger people coming through now, aren't we? And what's great, I think, is that they're all really enthusiastic yeah, so the apprenticeship scheme has been a real success for the organisation that's bringing kind of local talent through to become botanical horticulturists and be learning from people who've been here for 20 years or come from different institutions. So we're kind of building it from the ground up. We're building this new generation of horticulturists who not only know horticulture, but they know the local environment too. So I think that's been a real boon for the gardeners. We build sustainability. We kind of are building our teams and becoming more integrated into local society. Now, for just for those, uh, I mean, we've also spoke to James Kettle in this series as well. And we're talking a little bit more about horticulture here. I just wanted to just go over, and this might be a good opportunity if it's okay with you, just to sort of go over a little bit about the structure of horticulture here. Because you have yourself as a curator, then you have James Kettle, who's been like effectively number two. And then you have beneath that, you kind of have team leaders. Can you tell me about who the team leaders are and, and what, what area they affect? Yeah, of course. So the head of horticulture traditionally is a curator because what we have at the essence of a botanic garden is that we're a documented collection of plants. So it's a curated collection. So we're making sure that our plants are exhibited just like a piece of art or maybe a specimen in a museum. So that is the kind of top role in horticulture, making sure to drive those collections forward. But we need the people to do it beneath us. So in horticulture, we've got James Kettle, who's our horticulture supervisor. He is making sure that the work is going on, on the ground. He's kind of effectively the head gardener. He's very much practical and uh, gets to spend more time outside than I do. You see James uh, digging things a lot, don't you? Yeah, he's an incredibly <laughs> practical person, but he's been a fantastic person to work with. He's been just instrumental in taking this garden forward. And then we have senior horticulturists, and these are people who have 
portfolios of garden areas. So maybe that they look after Martin, for example, looks after the double wall garden, but also the bog garden. And these are people who get to specialize in their particular garden areas. And that brings a wealth of, of knowledge and skill and expertise to us. So, you know, Martin's been here for longer than any other member of staff. And I think his knowledge of the garden, but also knowledge of the subject has really helped the garden develop. Yeah. And then we have, you know, we have new people coming in. So Alex Summers has recently joined from Cambridge University Botanic Garden, and he's going to take the glasshouses forward. And we've recently just appointed a new head of uh, herbaceous and perennials. So Matthew Smith will be joining us in January. Where's he coming from? He's coming from uh, Wakehurst, which is a very similar garden to here. It's part of the Royal Botanic Gardens queue and is about 530 acres. So it's probably the only comparable botanic garden in size. Right. And you have Tom Campbell runs the estate side. Yeah. So when you get out into the wider estate, there's a lot to do, not only just looking after Winelass National Nature Reserve, but there's also the tree collections. We have the Arboretum, but also the woodlands in the wider estate. And that all comes under one role and the estates team led by Tom Campbell uh, bring a lot of expertise to that as well. So we're starting to see the whole garden develop. And a lot of these are fairly new roles. So when I first started, we had two horticulturists covering a large area. Now we have a slightly bigger team, but we've also brought in a lot of expertise to augment what we had here already. It's sad to see people go, because I know uh, Daryl Little, who retired just two weeks ago, and Daryl's been here virtually as long as I've been here. So it's like, uh, uh, you know, the wheel goes around, doesn't it? Of course. But it's just bring interesting new people in. And I think that's really good. I know I've got to know Alex Summers a little bit since he's been here. And his enthusiasm and his knowledge are just like immense. It's really thrilling to see people with such kind of like big new ambitions. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, Daryl was an incredible member of our team. You know, she served the garden so well over those years. She worked tirelessly. I mean, I don't know anyone who's got so much energy. Yeah. Um, I always worry about her knees, you know, because she's, she's always on the ground in, in cold winter days. And but what a great career to have, you know, spending your career making sure that you are cultivating this botanic garden, making sure that we're growing the plants that are being conserved, we are developing the plant collections for research. You know, that's an incredible contribution, a lot to look back on in a career to yeah. be really proud of. And I think now we're bringing in people with a lot of talent and new expertise, and hopefully they'll be here for just as long as Daryl. I don't talk individually, but is there some sort of cultural difference that's sort of coming up with younger horticulturalists? So I think as a botanic garden, we've kind of brought in people who um, maybe have a an understanding of what botanic gardens do and how we manage that, not just the plants on the ground, but also the data. So as a research collection, being able to document plants properly, and that's really helped by Don Moore, who's our plant records officer, making sure that we are keeping a really comprehensive database of these plants. That has incredible utility. You know, a researcher can't come and use our collections unless they know what the plant is. They've got the associated data. So we are seeing a more digitally literate um, <laughs> group of horticulturists coming through who have a, maybe a broader understanding, but also culturally it's changed as well. You know, if you think back... 20 years a lot of the horticultures we have now have come through school and university at a very interesting time about understanding the the challenges of climate change the challenges of biodiversity loss and there's a greater awareness in our younger members of staff perhaps because of the 
environment where they've grown up in. Yeah, I've noticed that just been chatting because you, 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 I think you, know, you have a friendly crew here as well, and uh, I've hopefully got to know quite a few. And I do notice that in a lot of the younger people, they, they, their environmental concern is is strong. And that's what we're here yeah. for. I mean, that's the bigger picture. So, you know, there has been times when the garden could have gone down a very different route where it was more ornamental. But um, the reason for establishing a national botanic garden was to address many of these challenges. So if you look back to our founding director, Charlie Sturton, mm-hmm. incredibly, he was talking about many of the things we talk about today. He was talking about biodiversity loss back in 1997. He was talking about climate change and very um, aptly he was talking about the risk of pandemics and how we need to manage biodiversity to prevent that so you know the challenges actually haven't changed this garden is even more relevant than when it was first created and uh, we're now getting the people who have the skill and the expertise to deliver that. Do you think in Wales we have the infrastructure for for, uh, creating the next generation of young horticulturalists who can be of a sufficient standard they would just slot into here? So when I first started, I don't think there was the same pathways that are available to people in other parts of the UK, but now we're starting to see that develop. So we're seeing the apprenticeship scheme is bringing people through and they're now happily in their careers in horticulture. got people like Carly Green and Matthew Bryant, who are now fully fledged horticulturists who trained here. But um, the question I always think about is if people didn't have the vision to think of a national botanic garden, and have it created here and opened in the year 2000, where would we be in Wales? You know, who would be doing that practical conservation? Who'd be growing the plants to restore plant communities around Wales? So there would have been a huge gap. And that's something we've talked about with Welsh ministers and really kind of brought the attention to is that we're uniquely placed within the, the Welsh conservation community to deliver conservation because we can talk about the theory of it we can talk about you know just the the practices but unless you have the genetic resources at your disposal it's really difficult to actually intervene in a meaningful way yeah i mean this is kind of analogous is that the right word with things like uh, having a national sporting team isn't it having your uh, a national football team it gives you something to aspire to sets a standard yes so when you look around wales you know there's a a huge amount of projects that just wouldn't have happened if the National Botanic Garden of Wales wasn't here. I mean, even just the fact that plants aren't going extinct in Wales, you know, that is because we're backing them up in our living collections. We are creating ex situ collections. We've got seed banks here that is safeguarding Wales's natural heritage. So we've got projects in Here Wine, up in Welshpool, you know, we've been collecting on the Great Orm. It really is a pan-Wales organisation. All these projects link back to that one decision, that one idea of having a national botanic garden for Wales. That's great. And even the fact that to show that someone cares, I've noticed this in conservation before, you know, when um, uh, it's only when people start to sometimes bring up a subject and to really show that they, they care, that they want to do something and people then get behind that without people being in the front. Sometimes things just dribble away or they just benignly disappear. That's the opportunity we have. I mean, I think as the National Botanic Garden, we need to be the champions of plant and fungi across the whole country. We need to be the ones who are singing on their behalf. We need to be the ones who are raising the alarm about uh, some of their threatened status. So without having that champion of plants and fungi in Wales, we would be a, a poorer nation. 
And I think we have a great opportunity to turn all of our horticulturists, our catering team, our gatehouse staff into ambassadors who are going out and sharing that message. And that's why being a visitor attraction is so important. You know, I said in the very first podcast, we could easily be a university department somewhere tucked away. We could be a conservation organization without letting people through the gate. But having oh. visitors come through, having them engaged in our message, that is really how we're going to change society to be more biodiversity conscious, but also change behaviours too, to try and improve the way that we engage with our natural environment. Well, I'm going to be a little bit selfish here, Will, because you see things through your, obviously, your own eyes. And um, uh, the one of the greatest things I think you've helped to deliver, is, and again, and this is just from my own personal point of view, is over the last um, two years, uh, we have started collecting wildflower seed from our hay meadows and selling it on to places across South Wales. Um, so we're, we're selling on uh, orchid-rich hay meadow species to places which are probably grass-dominated, nothing areas, for very poor areas for biodiversity. And I think that every seed that germinates in the ground that comes up is a new food source for bees and butterflies and all sorts of other biodiversity. Uh, and I think as it's coming from here, and it's uh, going out across the broader area across Wales. That's because uh, your colleagues in horticulture have combined really well with Hugh in the farm and uh, with the likes of myself and Kevin McGinn, uh, our science officer, and we've all shared our skills and we've made this happen. This has been working really, really nicely and it's something I absolutely love seeing. And I know that everything we do is good conservation work. And also, it means that visitors can come to the Botanic Garden and walk through these hay meadows themselves in the summer, just a visitor attraction as well. So on many levels, it ticks many boxes as far as I'm concerned, has been a real positive leap forward for the Botanic Garden in how it sort of like um, uh, works with the rest of Wales. So thank you. Yeah. The, um, the way the Botanic Garden works, you know, the model of a Botanic Garden has been incredibly successful around the world. And that's why people thought of it as working here in Wales. So the combining of the academic understanding with the horticultural skill, with the visitor attraction, being able to engage people in, is the, the unique selling point of our institution. So just what Bruce described, I mean, that is something that only a botanic garden can do. And I think the, the great vision for the future of the National Botanic Garden Wheel is to be that botanical hub, to be the stimulus, to be the catalyst of all these great projects around the country and the centre of information where people come. Because the, the academic side of it is great and the practical side of it is great, but it's only when they're combined together to support biodiversity conservation do we see the true utility of what a botanic garden can do. And I think that's a beautiful blend that maybe people don't often see when they're first coming as a visitor, but actually being able to have academia inform the practical applied conservation is a unique point of what we can do, but also we're delivering it here and now and we're making a difference across Wales. Yeah, even the, um, the science team we've got here, they're working with all sorts of different people. That's the other thing I've noticed over the last few years as well, is that we're not just sort of doing things on paper. We're actually practically working with other places outside of here. So, I'm, you know, I, I work with Plant Life, done work with them. Uh, we've done work with CAT, the Centre for Alternative Technology, with the National Museum, with the National Library, uh, with different wildlife trusts. 
with uh, uh, all sorts of other places around Wales that were actually done things practically. And you guys can feel very proud as well, even things like your Rabavan Memorial Garden as well. Yeah, I mean, there's some great um, examples of how that process happened. So we have had some research here done on Devil's Bit Scabious. That was by right. Natasha Devere and Laura Jones. And then later on, the horticulture department starts growing Devil's Bit Scabious and then it's restored back to Herowine in partnership with our commercial partners. So there is that link between horticulture and science. And I think the more we develop as a botanic garden, the more we have to see that come to the fore because there is no other organization or institution in Wales that has that ability. But it's never been so important for doing that. I mean, the ability to actively go out and restore plants back into their habitat to do population recovery is in huge demand. And it's in demand for a reason because um, there's not that many people doing it. <laughs> and it is a little interesting one to ponder over as well. Is uh, So you've got a, a member of staff called Katie Benelick, who whose job it is to also make it quite commercial doing, doing this conservation restoration and uh, from what I can see you're doing a really great job you're raising a lot of money is this the way you should be thinking in the future for botanic gardens to actually doing conservation financially viably our core mission is always to conserve biodiversity but we need to be realistic and practical about it about how we are able to finance that conservation work so we've been working on a number of projects with commercial partners and Katie Benalek has been doing a great job working and liaising with those partners to make conservation projects happen. So we've never really strayed from our mission. We've always been working in a way that is delivering what the Botanic Garden is here to do and the purpose we serve. But actually working with commercial partners not only helps to engage them and to educate them, but it also is a way for us to bring finances for the less lucrative conservation work. You know, yeah. there's certain plants that will never be lucrative for the botanic garden to conserve but it's at the core what we do you know there'll be a tiny gagea bohemica or you know just a, a plant that no one would look after otherwise that is our duty we're here to safeguard plants and uh, we can only do that by being financially sustainable one of the things that i've noticed over the years though will which has sort of brought in a lot more more new people into what we're doing is the way uh, that people have relinked into climate change. So um, when I've been in the past been doing trying to you know advocate the conservation work on uh, like meadows, making meadows more biodiverse or conserving fungi, it used to be like, oh that's lovely, that is well done, you well done, that's very nice. But then nothing happens because it just seems like just a nice thing to do. But now I notice more and more and more when we bring in the fact that a more biodiverse habitat locks in carbon or that fungi is like the blood circulation system of the soil and has this really important ecosystem role that people didn't used to know about. I notice that people are all linking this to climate change now and uh, and are actually buying into what we're doing. So it's, it's wrong just being a nice thing to do. It's actually benefiting humanity. I don't, is, is that just my no, grizzled perception of it all? 
I think the, the common understanding of all these issues and how they link together is advancing all the time. So I remember even here, we gave a presentation a few years ago and uh, Roger from our maintenance team asked the very apt question, um, why does it matter if we lose one plant species? And to my great pride, the horticulture team leapt in with the answer. So we have complex ecosystems, a bit like you know how complex your body is. You need all those organs to function. And if we're losing diversity from those complex ecosystems, we're losing the threads, eventually that ecosystem will start to collapse. And it's all linked towards climate change. It's all linked to how we interact with the natural world. So it is important to conserve each and every one of the species within Wales. Because we're a nation that's already lost so much biodiversity through the Industrial Revolution, through the cutting down of our forests and woodlands, we need to be very mindful about the biodiversity that we have left because they are adding complexity to our, to our natural world. And the more complex they are, the more resilient they are. So if we have any shocks, if we have any climate that changes, we need to make sure that our ecosystems and plant communities and fungi communities are complex enough to be resilient. Yeah. And I think we, as a botanic garden, are uniquely position to do that. So we are going after plants that are most threatened by extinction, making sure that we have collections of them, making sure that they are thriving in the wild and helping to restore those populations. And I think the more work we can do, the more we can be enabled to kind of make those big differences. So, you know, there will always be topics that are more snazzy, better funded than, uh, than botany, but actually it's at the very core of who we are as people because botany is at the basis of life. Yeah, and I, I am picking up on that more and more, you know. I, mean, I do a lot of work on fungi, and loads of people have read a book by a fellow called Merlin Sheldrake, uh, about, written about fungi. He's a real popular popularist in some ways, uh, advocate for fungi. He's doing a fantastic job. And I'm, the, the, the complexity questions that I get asked on walks and talks and things, I, I've noticed have also increased over the years. People know a little bit more, therefore they investigate themselves, and then they come with a bit more of a, a, a more thought-through question. And that's really gratifying. I like that. I mean, it doesn't mean, obviously, that, I mean, clearly we've still got a big uh, climate crisis. Climate emergency. Climate emergency. Uh, biodiversity is, as you say, has been in a real state but uh, because we've kind of, like, neglected it. But I can feel rumblings of thing, positive things coming through. And I like seeing people associated with here doing really good things, sometimes unobserved uh, or, or little observed, waiting for their moment. So, uh, funny enough, we've got the little sorbus grove, haven't we, of all the rare different versions of sorbus. And Wales is great for this kind of sorbus white bean sort of tree. And we've got lots of different varieties here. And they're all quite young at the moment, aren't they? And uh, for a, a display, it just looks, you know, it's quite hard to get a woodland display looking great after a like, when they're only about five or 10 years old. But I can see the interest in that just starting to start to happen. And uh, the other thing I, I've really enjoyed over, over the time here as well is seeing these lichens, which were these lungwort lichens, which used to be very common across Wales, now become very rare because of acid rain. And we've got this, um, uh, one of the leading mycologists in Wales, Ray Woods, has brought samples and put it on one, on an old uh, willow tree uh, down by the wild garden and almost keeping them alive until the conditions are right to take them back again and reintroduce them into the wild. That I find really, really fascinating. 
And as the only botanic garden that we know about who's done this experiment, that makes me feel proud. And I love seeing this tree and I'm thinking uh, maybe we'll start expanding this. But there's lots of little tiny examples in this garden now, over the last five years or more, of little things which are going on, which I think will have their day one day. Yeah, I mean, horticulture is difficult to appreciate the impact it has. So if you have a horticulturist who spend their day weeding and planting bulbs, maybe they don't see the bigger picture of what impact that will have in the spring. So when the spring comes around, we have visitors coming through the gates, they are starting to be in, you know, they're becoming engaged with plants and they're becoming engaged with the natural world. But also they start to learn as they walk around. So they will take in your interpretation boards as well. They will read our magazine. They will start to engage with the Botanic Garden. And I think that's what we have to be really mindful of is if the Botanic Garden wasn't here for the last 20 years, would we have as a biodiversity conscious public? Because people are coming here when they're at school age, at university age, and they're coming back. And that is the long-term goal of the Botanic Garden. It's really here to make sure that we're engaging as many people across Wales as possible. And that starts to evolve the conversation. So once we've evolved the conversation, we can talk about the more nuanced parts of government policy. We can talk about the greater challenges that we have in preserving um, some of our rarest habitats because we're starting to build that knowledge. And that can all come from just the inspiration of seeing incredible plants in incredible locations across this garden. I often wonder as well as the role of a curator. And a curator, as far as I'm concerned, just has an overall vision of, of, the, of the whole landscape here and everything that's inside it and all the plants that you put inside it. Have you had uh, conflicts in what you'd like to do compared to how you need to satisfy visitors? Yeah, I think for botanic garden curators, that conflict is always there. So we need to engage people. And that's part of our mission to try and inspire people. But we also need to show the diversity of plant life. So, you know, there will be certain plants that aren't the most ornamental, but it's important that we represent them within our collection because then they may have use in conservation and education in research as well. So there is that kind of conflict that will always be there. But I think we're getting to a point now with the very biodiversity aware public that we can do more, that maybe in the past wouldn't been deemed attractive, but now is deemed of interest. So we've seen that with you know the way that we manage our grass here. It's not lawns anymore. It's effectively yeah. grassland ecosystems. Yeah. You know, twenty years ago, that wasn't seen as the done thing. But the botanic garden here really led the way. You know, we've been experimental with things like not using peat in our compost. You know, that was the botanic garden fifteen years ago, not five. And yeah. uh, the way that we manage our grasses, well, you know, a lot of gardens are following suit based on what they've seen here, and you know, seeing the botanic garden have the freedom to do that. So I think we've got the opportunity to innovate, to try and challenge those boundaries all the time and uh, try new displays. You know, I want our horticulturists to be very experimental. You know, I was saying this just the other day to L. James, who's now looking after a boulder garden. Yeah. A botanic garden is here to be experimental, try and engage the public in new ways. And uh, we don't have to stick to ornamental. It can be both. Uh, and during your time here as well, uh, well, I know this was very controversial at the time, and uh, I don't even know what your opinions are on it, so I'm just going to ask you, is what do you think of doggy days? Because they've become quite important. Two days a week now, people bring the dogs in. 
Yeah, I mean, it was controversial primarily because, you know, dogs do have an impact in the garden and has an impact on the workload of the horticulturists. And, you know, the horticulturists really want to make sure that they're presenting the garden to the highest standard. However, I'm also very realistic that we want to engage as many people as possible. And if people are coming into the gardens and they're enjoying the gardens with their dog, you know, that, that is great. That's what we're here for. And we want people to enjoy it with their canine friends. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we do present the gardens as um, well as possible because we want to make sure that people enjoy it and have that true experience of awe. You know, we want to make sure that we can have clear beds. We want to make sure that we are making sure our horticulture is spending time on the tasks that they should be. And what do you think about um, uh, having outdoor art shows or new sculptures coming in? Good or bad? Yeah, I think art is a really important part of a botanic garden. You know, a botanic garden is really just a fantastic canvas. You know, we are growing plants here, but the gardens themselves are artistic expression. So I think the fact that we've had some great displays, you know, we had the Woodland Trust in one time doing kind of um, pop-up interpretation. We've had art in the garden. You know, that's really important because you want to be able to walk around. And again, it's all about encouraging people to think and challenging their preconceptions, maybe just surprising people with a piece of art. Um, I think one of the most popular bits of art has been the skull in the apothecary's garden. That's one that stimulates conversation. Great! Great! I went with Darren Yeed and putting that in, the ghost, as he's called it. And I know uh, some people go, oh, I'm not sure about that. But I, I remember the day it went in, I noticed people walking past and walking towards it, walking up to it, having a look. Then I'm going to look at the signs around it, trying to find out about, about the apothecary garden. I thought, result? Well, the, <laughs> the things we want to do is when we have people walk through the gates, we want them to walk back out again, having been inspired by our horse culture. Yeah. But we also want to pose questions. We also want to challenge ideas. And we also want to make sure that they're leaving here learning something. So if you're able to just challenge someone with art or maybe just give them some new facts about biodiversity loss. You know, that's a really important part of what we do. We can educate while entertaining. And I think that's the beautiful blend of a botanic garden is, is doing both. You know, it doesn't have to be exclusive. We can have some fantastic events, but also make sure that we're theming it in a botanical way yeah. just to make sure that we use that opportunity to engage people. I've noticed as well, in a future podcast very soon, I'll be talking to Paul Smith, who's our head of education. And uh, I, I know there's one project that Paul's worked on, and I'm presuming Horticulture's worked on, is Live Well Growers. Have you done much work with them? So it's mostly been um, Paul's project. But again, that's another way for a botanic garden to really engage people from diverse groups. So the botanic garden's resource, the botanic garden's collections have been used in that instance to really... Um, stimulate an educating environment because they're, they're brain inj uh, patients with brain injuries from the local hospitals who are uh, they're having their rehabilitation as part of his, his gardening and I just like that as well I, thought, I like the fact that people uh, are getting into gardening through all these different routes now and uh, that we we can welcome any route through don't we we want people to enjoy gardening we want to show them how to grow things and if it helps in rehabilitation all the better yeah, I mean, the Botanic Garden has really been planned since around 1990. You know, that's when some of the first feasibility studies were conducted. And what I often try and think about is what was their vision at the time? 
And I think today, if they looked around and they saw the education that we're doing here, but not only here, but across Wales with Growing the Future and Biophilic Wales, if they saw the plant collections diversify and maturing, some of the plants were growing in the Great Glasshouse, for example, are incredible. Mm. And if they saw the research output that we have from our science department, you know, I think people would be incredibly proud. So this is a garden that's really developed. You know, it's had its ups and downs, and, and most of our listeners will know that. But actually, if we look across the, the time span of this garden, it is really on a strong course, and it's developing and changing all the time. But it's definitely going in the right direction. If you were there, okay, so let, let's just play that sort of looking into the future role. If you looked ahead so a botanic garden like this, maybe in 20 years' time, is there any particular aspect that you would think might change? It's, probably, it's very hard to do this, isn't it? To, to look ahead. Well, it's quite interesting because in Andrew Sclater's book, there is actually a section... Oh, that's the book that was written, the hardback, when the yeah. garden opened in 2000, wasn't it? Yeah. So that was a book documenting the building and opening of the garden. You know, they yeah. did have a vision for what the garden would be in 2050 and it involved regional gardens. You know, it was going to be National Botanic Garden of Wales North. My view in looking forward to 2050 is I would expect our social role to continue to grow and change. So I imagine the National Botanic Gardens won't just be based here in Clonartney. You know, we will be out working in communities. We'll be working across the country, really delivering our mission as many locations as possible. I think we'll see more social prescribing, more kind of links to mental health and well-being in the garden. I think that'll be a, a growing trend. But I also see the living collections just increasing in this utility. I think we have some fantastic horticulturals here now are really doing great things to develop this collection and it will flourish in the years to come. So we will see researchers using this garden more, we'll see more active conservation being really stimulated by the fantastic collections we have here. We're still an incredibly young garden. I think that's really important to remember for people who are walking around today. You know, this garden will change so much. And one thing that I'm looking forward to is seeing the Arboretum grow up and mm, become a really definitely. important resource, not just for ex-situ conservation of Welsh plants, but also in the future be a refuge of plants from around the world because this garden has more space than most and we need to use it to the best of its utility. Yeah, it's funny, since, you, since the Arboretum was kind of like expanded and all the fences taken away, it's been great to look at it uh, kind of afresh and it's sort of... The, the trees are sort of becoming mid, getting close to a bit more middle-aged now. And you can sort of see the sort of different sections opening up and you can see people wandering around, which is even better. Like that. Yeah, I think um, the new curator will have a fantastic canvas to build upon. And I think you've got, you know, the, Tom and his team have been working hard to develop those collections in there. And I think it will grow and grow as the years go on. That is a fantastic resource. I think the... The Great Glasshouse, of course, is our number one resource for plant conservation, but the Arboretum is number two. And it's yeah. going to be increasingly important. By 2050, according to climate models that we've looked at, Wales will be more like Asturias in Spain. And our climate will change <laughs> to the point where we are you know, just saving the last of these plants that are in mountainous regions who have nowhere to go, or they're just being pressured by climate change and changing plant communities around them, or just the increase in urbanization and you know human dwellings around. These are all things driving plants to extinction. But this garden can be an incredible resource. I think we will 
be one of the premier botanic gardens making a huge impact on global plant conservation in the future. Just uh, again, I'm, I'm looking uh, through the garden through some of my, my own eyes in some ways. We also have the Wyandotte National Nature Reserve and we've not introduced a single plant into that uh, whole nature reserve. We've created the conditions to let nature happen. Do you think we should be experimenting in the nature reserve uh, with plants which might actually be more adaptive to this uh, Spanish future that we've got coming our way? I think the National Nature Reserve being uh, NNR, but not in SSSI, the reason we have that and the opportunity we have is to be experimental. So my hope for the Nature Reserve going forward is that we'll continue to be that learning resource, that we can try things, we can experiment with doing seed harvesting or green hay techniques. We can continue to monitor that biodiversity and see how it changes over time. We can try new styles of regenerative farming to try and best improve the floristic composition of each and every field. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's a fantastic opportunity to just play in a way for botanists i guess it's yeah. playing but it's also one of the few places in wales where you can do that you know you can't do that in triple sides you can't do that on a working farm necessarily but we could be trialing the future uh, techniques and solutions for sustainable farming in the future yeah and i think even just doing research on soil i think it'd be really good here as well early in the year i walked around uh sort of uh, the restored landscape and looking around Pond Valley Gat and you had a tree expert with you and you're looking at creating a woodland um, management plan for the next few years. It was interesting just chatting then about replacing the lost ash trees because obviously we've had a lot of ash die back here. That's caught a lot back. And that's one of those areas that you could maybe experiment with planting. I don't know what your views are on that. Do you think we should be proactively replacing the ash trees or letting them sell letting the woodland self-seed and see what comes up? I think we can do informed management. So we have the skills and expertise here. You know, we've got um, skills in botanical surveying. We've got skills in horticulture. We've got skills in tree management. So I think with that skill set, that is a great opportunity for trialing the new solution. So there is genotypes of ash that are resistant, but we also need to look at alternatives to ash too. And what I hope for in the future is the Botanic Garden will, you know, almost kind of merge back together. That we don't really see the difference between Winelast National Nature Reserve and the restored landscape and the Botanic Garden. Yeah. That it's all there to serve the purpose of conserving biodiversity, to safeguard our plants, but also for the understanding. So we understand plants better and how they interact with one another. So I think when we get to the position where we don't see the lines between these different sections of the garden. That's when we will come to our fruition. And how do you see um, uh, Wales in an international com uh, context? You know, one of the things that drew me down here is that Wales is a good size for being nimble. So, you know, we're a country of three million people and we have a small legislature, but we have a legislature that can be innovative. So if you are looking at the Future Generations Act, for example, that was because Wales could do that, they could adapt. So we can be very close to government, we can be really close to the conservation organisations that can make things happen. And that's the real opportunity that the National Botanic Garden of Wales has, is we can actually make a tangible difference to plant conservation in Wales. We can 
be the people delivering the evidence to the ministers. We can be the people doing the practical conservation on the ground. This is a fantastic opportunity and we really need to leverage our unique selling points and make sure that we're in the conversation because a small country can be influenced by a botanic garden. We've seen this around the world. You know, botanic gardens are a model that has been around for 400, 500, 600 years. And some of the examples we can point to from Scotland, from New Zealand, from Chile, you know, these are things that we can make happen here in Wales. We, we know how to do it. We've seen it happen before. We just need to start doing it. Are we making a big enough splash? Are we able to make a big enough splash on the international stage? Yeah, yeah the research that comes out of Wales is incredible. You know, Wales was the first country in the world to DNA barcode all of its flowering plants and conifers. That is an incredible achievement. That database has now been used for a wealth of research. You know, this department is doing research that matters internationally. You can look at the citations and see that instantly. This botanic garden has a huge international profile. You know, we are probably better known internationally than we are locally sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that is our challenge. This garden is seen as an incredible project. And that's something we should never forget. You know, this yeah. is a once, not just a once in a generation opportunity, once in a nation's opportunity. This is a really rare opportunity globally. And we have the opportunity to do something incredibly special here in South Wales. Well, well, it's been a real pleasure working with you over the last five and a half years. can't believe it's five and a half years. I particularly miss the way that you look at the role of what a botanic garden should be. I think, it's, I think you've brought a really strong, rigorous uh, approach to getting us to think a little bit more about why we're actually here. And I hope that legacy uh, carries on for obviously future generations ahead. In many ways, you know, I'm an outsider and I came here, you know, I've probably been to Wales once before. <laughs> and I think the one thing that we have to do is be really confident in who we are as a botanic garden and the change that we can make happen. And that's something that I've tried to instill in all of our staff, just to really understand that, you know, each and every one of the horticulturists here are making a difference. And we don't see it day to day, but we see it over the lifetime of the garden. So in this 20 years, we've had an incredible impact on Wales. And sometimes it's difficult to see. And I think we just need to draw attention to it. We need to believe in what we can do and, and the impact that we can have. And we need to make sure that people see it in us so we can go there and deliver. Okay, Will, I wish you well in the future, mate. Thank you.